Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. The amazing spider talk, the amazing spider talk, come swing the air, sit back and prepare for the Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. Thank you for joining us for the third episode of Season 5 of The Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to The Amazing Spider-Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This, as always, is the perfect time to start listening. In this season of The Amazing Spider-Talk, we're going back to the mid-80s when comics were changing, embracing new visual styles, aging up with their audience, and ditching formulas that had defined serialized superhero comics for decades. For Spider-Man, that change came with the beloved run of Roger Stern and John Romita Jr., a short but unforgettable series of comics whose impacts are still felt in today's webbed adventures. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing one of the most beloved Spider-Man stories from the Stern run, and really, the history of the character. Yes, you better believe it, we're talking about the kid who collects Spider-Man from Amazing Spider-Man number 248. And if you haven't read this story or have seen one of its various adaptions or homages, we advise that you do so, as the story packs quite a punch that I think will be mitigated by our discussion today. I would hate to be the guy that ruins this story for you in some way. However, unfortunately, Mark had to sit out tonight's episode, and I couldn't talk about this story alone. So I invited the artist behind that story, our good friend, Ron Friends, to join me to deconstruct the story and his process alongside Roger Stern's scripts one page at a time. Welcome back to the show, Ron. We'd love to have you here. Well, thank you very much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for asking. Yeah, so we're talking about The Amazing Spider-Man number 248, better known as The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man. Kind of an interesting issue because it's one of those things where an issue is known better for its backup story than the main story. I, I can't think of many issues quite like this enough that like I think even you know the, the designers of the cover knew okay this backup story is too good we got to feature it on the cover in some way so you know th- this issue just to g- give everybody listening at home a little bit of information was made during assistant editors month and plotted and 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 drawn using the marvel method and correct me if i'm wrong on any of these details here ron it was a two page plot but still, you know, pretty detailed, as, as you'll hear on the show. Originally assigned to John Romita Jr., who I assume backed out due to his work on Uncanny X-Men kind of consuming his time as he was filling in for Paul Smith on the same month with an oversized issue. 
This is a, a story that Roger Stern himself calls one of his favorites. It was obviously penciled by our guest, Ron Friend, inked by Terry Smith, colored by Christy Sheely, lettered by Joe Rose, and, and edited by Bob DiNatale. You know, it's a, it's a favorite issue. I would say top 10 Spider-Man stories from most people. Enough that it was even adapted into an episode of Spider-Man, the animated series from the 90s called Make a Wish. So, Ron, you're, you're here. You know, this is one of your earliest comics drawing Spider-Man. I believe you drew him in a Marvel team-up issue that was at least released before this. You know, where does this comic fit into your career history? Uh, very early in my interactions with Spider-Man, I think I had also done, whether it had been whether it had been printed, I really don't know, uh, Dan. Uh, I had done an, uh, an issue of Peter Parker with uh, Bill Mantlo that featured Jonah Jameson. I cover the waterfront. Yeah, that, it would have been before because it was still Tom DeFalco as editor of the Spider-Man titles. And yes, I had done so I had done Spider-Man in some Marvel team-ups, a Marvel team-up annual, and uh, a few issues. I, I was like the regular Marvel team-up guy briefly, although it doesn't really even seem like it. But yeah, the Assistant Editors Month came up. From what I've heard from Tom DeFalco, Roger Stern had this idea. I don't want to get too ahead of the conversation, but I was utility guy at that point, uh, as well as, well, let me think. If I was if I was doing team up, I might have still been on Star Wars too, possibly. I'm not sure. But there was some overlap with a lot of my regular gigs. But uh, working with DeFalco on team up is what led to this. And my career at that at that point had kind of unfolded in the course of the first year or so pretty much the way you hear it's supposed to. You, you know, you get one assignment and, and that build, you build on that to another assignment. You prove that you're reliable and uh, editors start hearing that you're reliable and they, uh, they take a shot with you. Spider-Man guest starred in Kesar, which was my first regular gig at Marvel. And Tom DeFalco saw Spider-Man and saw that I didn't screw up the character so badly that you couldn't recognize him. So he thought of me for Marvel Team-Up when, when that became open. And I did some Marvel Team-Up. And, and again, I didn't destroy the franchise or anything. So I was on deck. And when Roger Stern came up with this idea and Tom DeFalco said, I want to buy it. And Roger said, but at best, it's like an 11-page idea what where would you put it and he goes i don't i don't care i want to buy it if uh we either put it in an annual or we'll find somewhere for it but it's golden i i want to buy it and he said type it up so when uh assistant editors month came around that's where the discussion led what can we do that's special and you know i think it's one of the reasons why they gave it some cover play is because it was just unusual for Assistant Editor's Month to have two stories in an issue of Spider-Man to begin with. So I think that's one of the reasons they play up both stories. But this was issue was right in the transition, the editorial transition between Tom DeFalco and uh, Danny Fingeroth uh, on the Spider-Man titles. And Tom's intention was to give me the kid who collects, but it was ultimately going to be Danny's call as the new editor. And Tom didn't know what Danny's decision was going to be. So he gave me a heads up, but he said the decision has not been made. You'll either be doing the kid who collects Spider-Man or you'll be doing 
the wrap-up of the Thunderball story. That also would have been a possibility. So he said, I'll, you know, Danny will let you know what his decision is. And Danny decided to stay with Tom's initial decision and give me the kid who collects and let Ramita Jr. finish up the story that he had already started in the prior issue. So I don't know how much the uh, the schedule on X-Men really impacted the issue or not. You know, you know I mean, the Assistant Editor's Month is one of those things that was as much fan relation as anything. I don't know how much Bob Di Natale was really the guy who made all these decisions and calls behind the scenes or not. I have no idea. It's possible that it's exactly the way we read about it in the bullpen bulletins, but some of my impressions were that, that, that a lot of that might have been just for the press. And, of course, the anchor was Terry Austin. Of course, you can't go wrong on this issue because if I would have done the Thunderball portion, I believe Brett Breeding inked that. So one way or the other, I was going to get some decent inking on this one, uh, you know, some of the best in the business. So, uh, but, yeah, I, that's how it was, you know, I was approached about it. They said it was 11-page story. It was, you know, I was still in no way the regular Spider-Man guy or even knew that I was being considered as the regular Spider-Man guy, I was uh, sent the plot. I'm very happy to this day that I was. Um, You know, you said you were very lucky, you know, and I, I think, yeah, I mean, this is a great story to have been able to work on. I guess I'm curious, you know, looking at this as a complete piece before we break it down, what does the story mean to you now? Is there a specific kind of emotional resonance you place on this story, both in its content and place in your career? Uh, not so much the place in my career. The the emotional response is just very natural because I've been a Spider-Man fan since I was, you know, five or six, six or seven years old. I, I think I might have actually discovered Spider-Man through the old 67 cartoon in syndication. And I had some Ditko reprints, but the, the first issue I bought off the racks was in the number 60s. Uh, I believe it was number 60. So it would have been like, I think, 67, 66, 67. And I fell in love with the character and, and was motivated as much by my love of Spider-Man, which became a love of Marvel, which became, you know, solidified my love of comics. I mean, I started with DC like everybody else and solidified my desire to someday do this for a living. So to be on the on the, the verge of working on a Spider-Man, on Spider-Man stories, which I had gotten a chance to do a little bit as we discussed, you know, this, these 11 pages are Peter Parker. I mean, it, it's... If you want to say to some new reader, this is why I love Spider-Man, you could hand them this story and, you know, if they're paying attention, everything you love about Peter Parker is in this story. His humility, his humanity, everything is is on display in this story. And the fact that, you know, uh, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to talk to Roger about it. Uh, I can give you a little bit of background having discussed it with Roger. He dreamed this. He literally dreamed this story and woke up the next morning thinking this must have been a Superman story he read as a kid or something, you know, that it must have been lodged, uh, a memory that was lodged somewhere. So he spent the next several days pursuing people at the, at the Marvel offices and everybody. He would run the story past them and say, 
is that original or did I read that somewhere? Did I, you know, and nobody could tell him that they had heard it anywhere else. And ultimately he went in, as I, as I did mention briefly, he went into Tom DeFalco's office and bounced it off of Tom. And Tom said, I never heard it before. It's fantastic. I want to buy it and, you know, structure it however you need to structure it. Let's do this. You know, that kind of thing. He was, you know, it was, it's such a pure, simple idea. And, you know, Roger, his instincts were actually, you know, were spot on in doing it as an 11 page story rather than as a B story in a larger context. You know, I think the keeping it separate as a, a moment, uh, a distinct moment in Peter Parker's life was a very smart move. You know, because you could see this happening while he, you know, you you could have seen it broken into scenes in a larger context with, you know, a fight with a bad guy somewhere in there. And and it just would have watered it down. It just would have, uh, in my uh, my opinion, and I think in most people's opinions, it it just would have uh, uh, taken away from the uh, emotional impact and the the human contact of, of the story itself. You know, it's it's a wonderful uh, character piece, is what it is. I mean, you, it, it's a, you know, you are spending time. It's it's a wonderful two character play, where you're spending time with two characters and you're finding out about the characters in the course of the conversation. In you know, and the writer is skillfully telling you what you need to know on every single page as you need to know it, and it just is like a a, a perfect domino play everything falls into place and 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 you you find out everything at the moment you need to find it out and the story moves along and and then of course it does have its uh its incredible ending that uh, we don't want to spoil for anybody so you know oh no we're gonna spoil it if if you <laughs> if you haven't read this like come back to this later we're gonna spoil this it's 11 pages go read it and then come back and watch the rest yeah exactly right you know uh, reflecting on some of the things you're saying you know i i I can't help but think that like you know i would put this in my top three spider-man stories it's funny that like this and amazing fantasy 15 it's they're both 11 page spider-man stories and are amongst my favorites is there's a there's a joy to the simplicity, but what makes me happy and Ron, I'm going to pay you a compliment here, which I know you don't take terribly well, but I'm really glad that you got this story instead of John Romita Jr. Because, you know, having, I think a different artist on this story removes it from the, the timeline of Spider-Man or the immediate continuity of the present series with Stern and Romita Jr. And it makes it a timeless tale, not to mention that your pencils are very Ditko-esque. It makes it an evergreen story to me. It's something I can always return to without worrying about where in time this is placed. I mean, this could be a 19-year-old Peter Parker. It could be a 28-year-old Peter Parker. I mean, your drawings give it some specificity, but, you know, I think this could fall anywhere on, on Peter's timeline and be reflective of the character at that point in time and that's something that I love about it so much and why I find it, you know, uh, so endlessly return toable, if you will. I had never thought of it in that context before, but I understand what you're saying. But, but frankly, and thank you for the compliment, but, but, but at the same time, I steadfastly believe that unless you would have given this to 
and I've and I've heard about people like this. Unless you would have given this to somebody who said, "I don't want to draw this. I want to draw space aliens attacking and flying saucers," and completely butchered the eleven pages. Anybody who everything was on Rogers, as we'll as we'll discover as we move forward here, everything's on the page. My job as penciler was to stay out of the way and let Roger tell his story, uh, and and to help where I could. And but but generally stay out of the way. The the one thing I, the one thing that was my decision that I think has has lent to that timelessness that you're talking about was that as I read the story, what what really impacted me was that this was a Peter Parker story. This was Spider Man does not do anything overtly Spider Manny in the course of the story. He's not jumping around. He, you know, there is there is a display of his powers, but he's not in action a lot or at all. This is about Spider-Man looking like Spider-Man, standing there or sitting on a cot having a conversation. Now, to me, that meant the the person who did that the best in my and just in my humble opinion, being a huge Ramita fan, was Steve Ditko. Steve Ditko had Spider-Man standing uniquely like Spider-Man. And I needed you to see Spider-Man and not just the human figure standing there with the Spider-Man costume drawn on it. So that was, that was I felt, the best way for me visually to serve this story was to make sure that every time you saw Spider-Man in conversation just standing there or sitting there, he had to be Spider-Man. And Ditko was my way of doing that. Going back to uh, even older Ditko or earlier Ditko was was my uh, my solution to that. And doing a couple of swipes to to cement it and everything, and make sure that the, that was the uh, the approach uh, and that it was obvious. Interestingly enough, this being pre McFarlane and and pre everybody doing their Spider Man. Danny Fingeroth was very uncomfortable with some of the Ditkoisms that I threw in, some of the extreme Ditkoisms of, you know, doing the the webbing on the mask in the reverse, you know, and things like that, that he considered having corrected by the anchor. <laughs> and, mm. and to his credit, in my opinion, he didn't do it. I don't think it would have affected the story greatly one way or the other. But he understood what I was going for and, uh, and, and let, it, let it slide. You know, I mean, a, year, you know, a, a few years later, you know, it's, it became the Wild West on how you wanted to handle Spider-Man and his webbing. The, the, the Ramita model was pretty much supplanted by, uh, you know, unbridled creativity, let's say, uh, in the handling of the Spider-Man costume. But for this situation, you know, and and it turned out to be, uh, again, at this point, I didn't know I was going to be awarded the series for any period of time, be it six months or ever. So this became a real moment for me of rediscovering Ditko and what made Spider-Man unique and different, which is something that I seek out anytime I'm awarded a series anyway. So it kind of put me a, a, on a slight jump ahead in my study of Ditko when I was awarded the series. So, but, but that was what I felt just as an illustrator that I could bring to the table, uh, is, is to, you know, 
make sure that we may have, there was no mistake that this was Spider-Man in that costume, standing there having that conversation. Quickly, you know, you've done a couple of books with Roger Stern over the years, specifically Spider-Man stuff. You know, what kind of working relationship do you guys have? Are you guys calling, you know, calling each other or you saying, I want to do a really dicko approach to this, you know, art, you know, is that something that you think lines up? I mean, he is described, you know, at, at, when we had John Romita Jr. on, he said that they had, you know, a, you know, a pretty good working relationship in terms of talking on the phone. Was was that something you were doing at this point? Or since this was a smaller story, you received the script and kind of ran with it? At this point, I, I don't remember. Of course, this has been 20 some years now. I don't right. remember having a conversation with Roger at that point. I I don't actually none of the projects I've worked on with with Roger. Do I remember having any kind of a plotting type? conversation with Roger with Hobgoblin lives. That was a, something he sold separately and, and wrote up separately and everything that, that could easily have gone to Ramita jr. As well, uh, except for his schedule. Uh, and then they, they thought of me and, and brought it to me. So no, I I've never actually, I don't think I've ever actually sat and, and plotted anything with Raj, but uh, we, we're friendly. I, I consider him a friend. I hope he considers me a friend. We have spent social time together at conventions and uh, I have been over to his home and met his lovely wife. And, uh, you know, I think we have a, a, a fairly good relationship. Uh, we talk on the phone occasionally and laugh. And, you know, I, I think he's a, an amazing guy. He's got a terrific sense of humor. He comes across very reserved and, and kind of laid back. But he's got a wicked sense of humor, uh, which I really appreciate. And uh, so, so he's a terrific uh, person and a fantastic writer. Uh, I have incredible respect for him. And we've had enough interaction over the years that I, I get the impression, I hate to speak for other people, but I get the impression that he has a certain amount of respect for what I do. He did a portfolio years, years and years ago after we had met early on and, and done some conventions together up in, uh, oh, the area of upstate New York that he's from, Ithaca. We had spent some social time together and everything. And he was doing, a, he had an opportunity to do a portfolio of his concepts that he had never gotten into print. And he actually approached me about doing one of the plates, one of the characters. And then he did a write-up. You know, he got John Byrne to do one, of course. And Roger's friends with most of the big names in the industry. So I was flattered to have been asked. And he did a, he did a little write-up for each of the illustrators on each of the plates. Mine was inked by Carl Kiesel, so it came out looking great. And Roger's write-up was incredibly flattering. And I, there is reason for me to believe that he was, you know, he's aware of my work and he doesn't, he doesn't hate my work. So I'm very humbled by that. And uh, I enjoy working with Roger and any opportunity I'm given. So, in fact, uh, currently we're working for a publisher called Sit Comics, and Roger is doing some writing for them. And I just got to work off a Roger plot again, and it was a great, great pleasure. That's great. Well, so speaking of Roger plots, uh, let's talk about how we're going to handle this conversation. So, you know, we're going to uh, read through Roger Stern's original script 
with each page that we turn as we deconstruct this comic. I'll, I'll, I'll note that the pages that I have are were provided, you know, they were available on Tom Brevoort's blog. So if you want to go and read it yourself, you know, the pencils I'm going to show are also from there as well. And the final pages that I'm going to show, if you're on YouTube, are from my own personal collection as I scan the pages to uh, have them here today. You got to have that pulpy paper texture. You can't get those digital scans. So again, I'm going to be reading through the script one page at a time so that you, if you're listening to this on a podcast, you know what we're talking about. And if you're on YouTube, you can see the visuals of what we're looking at. One comment, Dan, is wherever this scan came from, and I'm not quite sure from where it came from, what the origin of it is, this was my plot. The numbers in the margin breaking down the page count, that's my writing. This was the the the, uh, the copy that was sent to me to work from because those are my numbers <laughs> along there. So uh, obviously at some point I, I sold the plot to somebody or gave the plot to somebody and it made it out into circulation. So uh, yeah, but that's, that's the copy that I worked off of. Well, I, I will advise you, Ron, between you and me, not to get into a math-related field because you count one through nine and then go straight to 11. So, but that's really cool. I didn't know that. I mean, I thought perhaps, you know, uh, and, and, you know, it, it's funny to say that, and we'll find out as I read this, it's addressed to John Romita Jr. So I, I don't know, somehow Tom Brevoort got his hands on this, which makes sense because he's a, you know, renowned collector of various things. I, I, I would love to peek through Brevoort's collection, you know, someday, but I doubt I'll ever be allowed that. So yeah, we're going to go through this. I'll try to detail where any places where the, I feel like the script differentiates from the final artwork. And I'll operate as the person that is talking about how great Ron is because he can't do that. Let's get started with this. So the script starts, okay, John, this is a tearjerker of an issue. There's a newspaper article that goes along with this one, see enclosure, that will be seen in bits and pieces throughout the story. We're doing a Will Eisner number on this one, as you'll see. So then we get to page one, and uh, page one is described by Stern this way. Splash page is kind of weird. The top third of the page is the beginning of the newspaper article, set up like one of Jimmy Breslin's columns. But we don't see the whole article, only about down to the point where it says, Tim collects Spider-Man. The rest of the article is tattered away as though someone had badly ripped the article out of the Daily Bugle and laid it over the top of the page. The rest of that page is the darkened bedroom of Tim Harrison. Tim is sitting up in bed, surprised, as Spider-Man comes in the window like Peter Pan. Tim's bedroom is in a sort of cottage bungalow on the grounds of a children's cancer hospital out in the country, but we won't know that until the story's end. It should look more or less like a nine-year-old kid's room, maybe a little Spartan, and there should be a big old steamer trunk at the foot of his bed. And so that's the script or a plot for, for page one. You know, I think, Ron, you translated that exactly as put. So looking at your pencils in the final page here, does anything strike you or your memory about putting together this big opening? Like I would say reminiscent of, of Ditko, a big opening splash to start the comic off, laying out all the elements at play here. You know, does anything strike you looking back on this artwork? Only that uh, when when Mr. Brevoort did his uh, his essay on this, uh, he pointed out my Ditko swipes. But that shot of Spider-Man, uh, the the orientation of it and the approach of it 
was taken from a John Buscema, Jim Mooney Spider-Man issue because I didn't want to try to involve the window per se. I just wanted, you know, Spider-Man to be Spider-Man on this thing. And, and I, and of course I, I went with full Ditko detail and everything, but there is an issue of the amazing Spider-Man. I don't know what number it is. It was during the, uh, Petrified Tablet Saga, where Spider-Man is in a, in a similar uh, orientation and position watching uh, George, Stacy, and Gwen. Uh, he was talking to George, and Gwen came in, so he made himself scarce up on the ceiling to hide from Gwen. And then when Gwen leaves, he jumps on to continue his conversation with uh, with, with George Stacy. So uh, that that is what occurred to me when I started to set up the scene. And I went back and looked at it, and uh, that saved me some thinking. So, <laughs> but you also will see that immediately I'm embracing the Ditko with the reverse webbing on Spider-Man's chest area, you know, and things like that. That uh, you know, that again gave gave the editor some uh, some concerns. the 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 bungalow the Spartan bungalow uh, aspect of it was something that I was really trying to. You know, I, I didn't want to give anything away, but I was very concerned with uh, with that, that aspect that Roger mentioned specifically. I remember that being a concern uh, for me and trying to balance that with, you know, giving away the whole candy stand at the same time. So I, I there was a liberal use of, of shadows and things like that to try to just hide as much as possible. You only saw what I needed you to see. You know, that kind of thing. I love speaking of the shadows. I love this kind of repeated motif that you created with this kind of like diagonal cut lines of shadows. I think a really great as you utilize them to guide the viewer's eye through the, the page from Spider-Man to Tim in the bed. And there's a number of other instances where you're doing this to at least from my perspective, uh, perspective, keep the viewer engaged and reading through the page. Is, is that the kind of genesis of this? Yeah, but, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I have had uh, fellow illustrators point out certain things. They all end up being happy accidents. I, I, the best I can tell you is that it, that it tends to be instinctual for me, I guess. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, I, I might not be able to tell you why it's not working for me. You know, it's not, it's, I, I can't cop to the fact that it is a cognitive thought process. <laughs> It's just what works for my eye uh, as I'm as I'm uh, developing the the thumbnails and such. So uh, thank you, but I don't know how much credit I can take for it because it is instinctive more than anything. So you mentioned swipes, and you know some listeners or viewers of this show might not know that terminology, and we're going to be talking about this, I think, throughout this process. Can you tell people a little bit about like what is a swipe? What does that mean? And and also like swipes kind of have like a they over the years like you have artists like Greg Land who have gotten a lot of kind of like vitriol thrown his way for frequent swiping. You know, it's kind of gained a bit of a bad reputation over the years, but I don't think know that that's really duly earned. Can you talk about like what part of your process that plays and and what a swipe is? Well, what a swipe is, is basing a shot on the work of another illustrator, quite simply. 
if you want to call it ripping off or or stealing or something, it, where when it when it became uh, useful and 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 as it as it evolved uh, when it was first introduced, it was introduced as a way of of keeping a consistency in the artwork, of keeping a consistency with the way a character moves. You know, early issues of uh, of Thor, a new illustrator would come on and wanted to keep want to keep it consistent with what Jack Kirby had introduced. So they would use a certain amount of of, of swipes. They would repeat some figures. And for me, as a fan, I never saw them as a an insult or an affront. Uh, I used to see them as a uh, a touchstone of continuity. For, for me, it, it's a cele- it, It's kind of a celebratory thing. I've never done a swipe hoping nobody noticed. I, when I do swipes, I want people to, I, I would love for people to recognize them. I would love for them to feel uh, an, a shared experience of recognition and, and continuity for, for, with the character. I, that may be incredibly naive on my part. I don't know. But yeah, you know, the people that that are really negative about it, it, it strikes me as a little funny that that they would be criticizing an illustrator who has just done twenty two pages of continuity, and there are like three swipes in the course of it. You know, on three panels, there's like three swipes, and yet they completely successfully did twenty two other pages of of continuity. And yet somehow that invalidates all the other work and thought that they put into it by, by doing swipes for whatever reason they did swipes. In my experience, usually when somebody does a swipe, it's because they, oh, I love that shot. Oh, I'm going to get a chance to do that, that Neil Adams shot that I always loved of Green Lantern, you know, that kind of thing. And you have to, you have to, to be reasonable about it. In my opinion, the worst mistake you can make doing a swipe is if that person's stylistic approach doesn't uh, approximate your own uh, or if you're not willing to do the entire issue under that approximation because then in my opinion you've you've committed the sin of taking the reader out of the story by making that shot look different from the consistency of the art and and you're you're risking knocking the the uh, uh, the reader out of his willing suspension of disbelief and, and knocking him out of the story. So I, I endeavor to never do that. You know, again, the, 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 the layout of the shot and the, the position generally of Spider-Man is the same, but the detail is not Basema Mooney. The detail is Ditko, and the approach is Ditko, and the blacks are spotted differently, and blah, 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 blah. So there's plenty of differences to the point that nobody has ever called me on that one. So, ha, um, but uh, yeah, that, you know, I, I, I think swipes do get a, a, a bad rap. The one of the things that you got to be careful about with swipes too, is that you don't keep going back to the same well too often. You know, there are certain illustrators that are famous for having a morgue file of photographs and you see the same face repeated uh, more than sure. once in the course of a job. Uh, or you see, you know, uh, in the course of several pieces, you see the same, the same reference repeated, and it looks enough like the reference that you you're recognizing it time after time after time. You know that that can be something that can again take the reader, you know, give the reader a completely different 
attitude about the work that's being produced. And it's unfortunate when it happens, but, you know, so, so you use it sparingly, you use it as a learning tool, you use it as, you know, as I said, I will occasionally do it as a, as a celebration, like, oh man, I get to do that shot. I always loved that shot as a kid. I'm going to do that shot. I'm not going to try to take credit for it, but I'm going to do that shot. On my Facebook page, I, I have pointed out several that nobody ever called me on. You know, I will out myself constantly because I'm hoping People will, if they haven't noticed it before, they'll notice it and they'll smile and they'll say, yeah, I remember that shot. That's cool. Good for you. You know, if they don't react that way, say la vie. When you get a plot like this, you know, what, what are your, you know, just before we get into, I saw, you know, those lines you're drawing page by page. What's your process for, you know, like uh, approaching a book like this? You lay out each page, you see your content. I mean, uh, you know, bro- broadly, what is you know, the, like when you receive something like this, I do a thumbnail stage. I don't know if I ever, I don't know if I ever sold the thumbnails to this job or if I ever, they might be in a box somewhere. I first do uh, take a picture, an eight and a half by 11 sheet. Now picture it divided into uh, four smaller versions of a page. And I go through the job page by page. Before I uh, do the whole job in thumbnails first because that's where I do my pacing and that's where I make sure that it all feels cohesive and holds together. And then once those thumbnails are done, I use a Lucy projector, an enlargement projector to blow it up to page size. And I'll lay it down on the page loosely. And then I will take those pages and sit down and tighten up the pencils. These, of course, were not full pencils. I don't know if I knew I was going to get the opportunity to work with Terry Austin. I'm not sure I knew who was inking it at the time that I turned in the pencils, but I was thrilled. Uh, you'll notice that, you know, there are open areas with, with little X's. Those X's are a signal to the anchor that that's a solid black. And uh, at that point in my career, very early on after I was hired at Marvel, they indicated that they liked my storytelling and that my major contribution uh, was to be storytelling. When I was when I was hired, not so much on Kesar, but when I was hired on Star Wars, it was under the auspice that Tom Palmer was the look of the book and he was already in place. And Walt Simonson had moved on from doing layouts for him. And they were, you know, they it was I was very aware that I was being brought in to tell the story visually and to do layouts for an already established finisher. So this was a, a breakdown job. I, my breakdowns tend to be a little tighter as far as the actual line work, but I do take the opportunity to leave large black areas. You know, I, I spare the ink or the graphite, and they know what the, uh, the indications indicate, and uh, they go from there. Is that Star Wars poster on the wall there like a, a nod to you working on Star Wars uh, at the time? Is that, was that I mean, other than just being something a young boy would be into? I think it was more the young boy thing than anything because Star Wars was, you know, very much the the vogue of the time. Uh, I don't remember it being, a, you know, as much of a, a of a personal Easter egg or anything. It was more it was more the fact that, you know, if you were going to put a poster in a young boy's room at that point, it would be a Star Wars poster. And, you know, it, at one point, I know at the point that, that Mr. Brevoort wrote his essay, 
he said, "We you wouldn't be get away with that anymore." But now Star Wars is back at Marvel, so I mean, probably would be okay. There's a certain amount of fair usage for things that are part of the uh, the the public thing. You know, I mean, the the things that are out right. there in the atmosphere. I mean, you could do a, like a Coca Cola sign in Times Square, you know, things like that. So I, I I can't imagine it would be that big of a deal. I mean, you're certainly not selling the book on the on, on under the auspice of look, there's a Star Wars poster. So I can't imagine any, <laughs> I, I can't imagine anybody would make trouble about it. But then what do I know? I'm not an attorney. That's why I bought it when I was a kid. I had to have that tiny tiny Star Wars poster. Yeah, forget um, the Ramita Junior breathing art. Forget the cool story. Forget the you know yeah, it was the Star Wars poster on page twelve. Yeah. So um, Tim Harrison himself, I mean, uh, is is this a, a real kid? Where where does this visual come from? Is he modeled after anyone in particular? No, he is uh, modeled after, I mean, we've already, been, from reading the plot, you know about the cancer clinic and everything. So there was, I don't know whether Roger describes it or whether it was just something I was aware of. I wanted to make his hair look thin without giving anything away. You know, we didn't want him to be bald or anything like that. But I was trying to to give him a haircut that wouldn't give anything away. And I probably could have gotten away with, with less of the eyebrows or something like that. But no, it, it was really me trying to, you know, stay with the, the, the Ditko feel uh, and uh, come up with a young kid who had uh, an expressive face because it was going to be all about the expressions, you know. Well, very cool. A great start to the story. So let's go to page two. Uh, so page two reads, Tim can't believe his eyes. Spider-Man here in his room. It can't be real. Spider-Man hops up onto the ceiling. What's not real, Tim? Skitters down a wall. Me? Nope. I'm real. All right. Zips under the bed. The one and only genuine article. Tim rubs the sleep out of his eyes with Spider-Man out of sight under the bed as if it never happened. And ta-da. Tim and his bed are lifted ceilingward by Spider-Man. So uh, a really dynamic page. It's probably about the most movement you're going to get out of the characters here and wide-eyed Tim looking on in uh, in disbelief. I'll let you get started here. Anything you see, Ron, that you want to comment on uh, before I ask you any questions? Only that it was page two that gave me permission to put Spider-Man up on the ceiling because he was going to end up there anyway. And this was also a matter of me trying to compact the action to the point that I wasn't doing too many smaller panels uh, as far as him skittering. You know, I, I as I'm looking at it now, you, you I could have used a multi-image uh, Ditko trademark of Spider-Man skittering along the wall or something, you know. But I was also interested in communicating Tim's initial joy, but also his initial confusion and, you know, the where did he go stuff and everything that I, I didn't want to go to nine panels on a page yet or anything. And I didn't want to do it at all. If I can help it, I wanted to save it for the more intimate moments. So, uh, so I did compact a little bit of the action and start him up on the ceiling instead of coming through the window and blah, blah, blah. But uh, other than some of those choices, uh, no, I don't have a lot to say. I, they, again, I was, you know, camouflaging some of the room with shadow I was using the the, uh, the noir shadow to kind of you know center in on Tim and and uh, and keep things simple with a you know a chest and drawers and a dresser and things like that and that's the first we actually see the, since we were going to be picking up the bed that's the first we see the the uh, 
uh, what was it called? The 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 thing. I think he call, he calls it a uh, a big old steamer trunk. That's the first we indicate the steamer trunk because it will it will play a larger part in it. But because of the way I was planning on uh, staging the action, it's it's off to the side and not right at the foot of his bed yet. But uh, there you go. I, I'm actually I did not read the plot again before we sat down to do this. So there are things that are different that I'm hearing for the first time that I wasn't following things word for word. But uh, but yeah, the, 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 hopefully you, it captures the spirit of what Roger intended, and that's the magic of working Marvel style. Yeah, I, I love the snappiness of your of your thing. It's like a little more heightened action, and like each panel's got a really specific beat to it. Um, and and the cinematic nature of it, the close up on Tim's wide eyed face, I it's like just a little close. I mean, you talk about your inspiration from Ditko, but like that's an image. I don't think I would ever see Ditko use. I don't know that he got that close on characters and there's a real like a, a expressive, uh, you know, emotion to this. And then you've got great things like the uh, negative space in the final panel and, and breaking through the, the gutter with Spider-Man's arm and Tim, you know, emphasizing, you know, Spider-Man's raw power as he can break free. There's just little touches that I, I particularly enjoy here. Well, thank you very much. And of course, you can also see what the inker brings to breakdowns. You can you can see what uh, you know what Mister Austin is adding at, at every point. Uh, as far as like the pattern on the rug, he ended up using some kind of a zipatone to to keep it more under control and to keep it contained. And the solid blacks, you know, uh, making them work in the context of what we were doing, the way he breaks up the motion lines on Spider Man in panel two. Once the blacks are in place, you know, there are all these things that, that are part of the process in uh, of inking that uh, a lot of people don't understand. It is not tracing the, you know, it, it's making decisions about the uh, the quality of the line, the consistency of the line, and, uh, and, and what that figure and line are trying to communicate and how they're interacting with the background. Those are all decisions, especially on a breakdown job. Those are all decisions that the anchor makes, the finisher makes. And your Spider-Man is definitely of the slimmer variety, like Ditko style, than say like the more kind of muscular Romita. Although this is probably the most like buff his physique looks throughout this comic. Well, yeah, I mean, some guys go nuts. Uh, uh, you know, Diodato made Spider-Man look like Captain America at times. I've never been a fan of that. I, I've always been a fan, especially if he's in a room with other superheroes that he's 5'10 and everybody else is 6'1", you know, and that and that Spider-Man stands like a man in a costume while Thor stands like a god and Captain America stands like a statue, you know, things like that. So that that kind of uh, one-to-one comparison, when you don't have that to fall back on, you you go with uh, Spider-Man being Spider-Man-y. <laughs> you pull out your Ditko and you... You try to maintain that that lovely character to the to the figure. Okay, let's move on to page three. So here is uh, what Roger writes: Spider Man then shifts his grip and lowers the bed gently so that standing beside it, Tim is bouncing up and down in his bedclothes, thrilled out of his skull that the his hero has come to visit him. But how? Why? Spider Man tells Tim that he saw the article about the young spider collector in that day's bugle couldn't pass up the opportunity to meet such a faithful fan. 
I understand you're a one-man clipping service. Cut to another torn fragment of the newspaper article, shown as Section 2 on the article Rough. Then back to Spider-Man and Tim digging through the steamer trunk. Spider-Man is looking through some old kinescope reels of his TV appearances, pulling off a little film and looking at it up to the light. Son of a gun, I almost forgotten this one. There's a, a few swipes here that I think are maybe a little more obvious than the first page one that uh, I really enjoy. That second panel, you know, straight out of, out of a Ditko comic. Can, you know, do you know the exact issues that you pulled those from? I do not. It's been way too many years. I'm afraid I don't know where it would have been swiped from. I, there, There's obviously heavy Ditko there. And I'm sure I was looking at at a shot, but uh, but no, I don't I don't remember where. But you know, I and I don't know if panel four is 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 a a lift or not. It was me trying to capture that that quirky Ditko stance on my own to to serve the shot. I but I I don't whether or not that's actually a lift. I have no idea. I have no idea about panel one at this point. I'm afraid. It is a matter of just telling the story as clearly as possible at this point. You know, this is much more what my memory was of me just trying to give Roger what he was asking for. I mean, you gave him buns of steel in panel four, so I'll, I'll give I'll give it that. Spider Man's looking pretty good. I'm absolutely uh, sure you could bounce a quarter off of that 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 monster. But uh, <laughs> I, I also want to give a shout out though that this is one of the best jobs I've ever seen of post-production, whether it was Mr. Di Natale or whether it was Danny Fingeroth or whoever was in charge of the production on these, uh, the article snippets, they did a fantastic job. Because if, yeah. you look, if you look at page one, they actually had to extend the what I penciled in. They had actually had to extend it slightly to accommodate the article at a size they wanted to do it. But I mean, but just the fact that they they were putting little pieces to the sides and everything to make it look like it was uh, you know torn from a newspaper. I was just impressed as heck when I when I saw the finished product. I was I was so proud to be a part of this piece. I mean, they even left out the panel border to the to the lower uh, right of panel three the way I intended it. The pencils and the colorist picked up on it and. You don't always get that kind of sense of synergy that everybody's paying attention and that everybody's doing their job like you do on this one. And uh, it, it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful feeling, even for us, when, 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 what's the old saying? I love it when a plan comes together, you know, when everybody's, yeah. everybody's on paying attention and everybody's on point and it just ends up looking really tight and really, uh, it all came together really, really well. It's funny you mentioned the clippings because as a kid reading this, I, you know, I always wanted to read the whole thing in, in, in its existence, not torn apart. You know, it really felt like a real tangible item that perhaps was out there in some way. And so often in, in, in comics, they'll use like comic book lettering for that. And it just is it just there's a clash because, you know, the difference between what a newspaper looks like and what comic book lettering looks like. So you're right to point that out. I wonder if panel five is an, is a is a swipe from Spider-Man looking at his own photos uh, that he's taken for the Daily Bugle. That seems familiar to me. Dan, anything's possible. And I don't remember, you know, d- 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 trying in any way to make sure that every shot was a swipe. And, you know, I, I don't 
at this point, again, quite honestly, don't remember, you know, there are a couple of towards the end that are uh, far more recognizable that I, I knew were going to be far more recognizable. And, and there's one of the beats in particular that I wanted people to to say, you know, oh, there's Ditko's Peter Parker right there, you know, that kind of thing. You know, it has been 20 some years and I honestly don't uh, I don't remember, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be facetious. Every shot is, you know, it's certainly so Ditko that every shot could be, could be a swipe, but. Well, that, that's the appeal. That's, that's really the appeal. It's very consistent. And then my genius would be that they all, they all work to serve the story, you know, uh, consistently and well, and uh, gosh, what a genius I am for being able to do that, you know. Um, you know, I do have a question though. I mean, this is like the pre-internet. This is squarely pre-internet, you know. And you said you started collecting at like issue sixty-six or sixty-seven. Sixty-seven being that great Mysterio cover. You know, if you are, you know, doing swipes or whatever, you know, where are you pulling that from? Did you go back and collect stuff? Did Marvel give you like a stack of books? Like, how does that work in this era? No, I I became a, a collector. I I own original copies of quite a few of the original Ditko. I was a big Marvel Tales guy when it was being run, though. Too, you know, I I always loved the fact that Marvel had the reprints and you could fill in the blanks uh, and fill in your collection. Uh, and it, of course, at that point, it's it's crazy to think about. But in the '60s, Marvel had only been around, you know, uh, uh, ten years or or so, you know. Uh, when I was reading comics in the early 70s, Marvel had only been around 10 years. You know, I've worked for Marvel longer than Marvel existed when I discovered Marvel. And Brett Breeding and I think about that all the time and it blows our circuits, you know. But um, but yeah, I, I, a lot of it was through uh, through annuals and, and uh, that I discovered Ditko. But uh, when, when I was actually working on the book, I would go to back, you know, I, I would specifically choose comic shops that had back issues in, in boxes so I could sort through and, and, and go back and fill in my Ramita and go all the way back to the Ditko stuff. And I own original copies of, of uh, a lot of the Ditko run, not, not the very early issues, of course, but those I have in reprints. Those I was actually honored to do uh, reprint, uh, do covers for some of the reprints of some of the early Ditko. Yeah. I, I've actually done... Twice I've done the original lizard story. I've done a new cover for the original lizard story twice, <laughs> and the 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 early story where he fights Doctor Doom. I've done two separate covers for that for reprints. So, yeah, I, I spend I have spent a lot of time revisiting uh, Mister Ditko's work, to and it's always a pleasure, always a pleasure. I I gotta admit, I just blacked out there when you said that there was value in the annuals. I just. Like and the rest of everything you said just disappeared. I, I I focused in on that. Okay, let's turn the page and go to page four here. So, uh, okay, so here we are on page four. Uh, so page four reads: While time pulls out, or while Tim pulls out a couple of big scrapbooks, this is the earliest article about you I could find. There's a Daily Bugle article asking who is the Spider-Man. Spider-Man chuckles over the thing sitting on the bed next to Tim. Tim looks up at him quizzically, asking. How did you get these neat powers anyway? Spider-Man says, well, you won't believe this, but cut to a shot of Peter Parker getting bitten by a radioactive spider. And let's show Pete as a silhouette so as not to give anyone the impression that he's telling the kid his identity here. 
Another flashback shot of a silhouette Pete, Pete leaping out of the way of a speeding car. And one last flashback of silhouette Pete clinging to a wall and crunching a protruding rooftop pipe. See reference on this stuff. So here you get to do, you know, the mother of all stories a little bit, you know, uh, you know, get, putting your spin on a Dicko interpretation of Amazing Fantasy 15. And Roger, anytime he does a plot that, that uh, has flashbacks, he does all the research himself and sends you a packet of Xeroxes of specifically what he's what he's looking for so he never leaves it up to you which was fortunate back in the pre-internet days that you know that he didn't leave it up to you but but roger was always very hands-on with the pencils too it's possible that my pencils were sent to roger uh the actual physical pencils might have been sent to roger while he was working on it because quite often he would insist on it Uh, so he would have access to the pencils in case he needed to ask for certain changes or something he could do it right on the boards so i i my guess is that he may have had access to the original pencils and he wrote in the headlines and made sure that everything handled uh, on the page was exactly what was being talked about in the copy and everything um, but again you know it's one of those things where every everybody's doing their job and everything works you know the lettering is by terry austin i would think it, that's what it looks like to me but I would think that it was probably uh, penciled in by Roger first. Uh, and, and they just did a wonderful job with the entire thing. I mean, uh, you know, Terry Austin's an illustrator in his own right. He's, he's not just an anchor in any way, shape, or form. So he was more than uh, qualified to, to, to Greek in, you know, imagery and all this kind of stuff and did a wonderful, wonderful job with it. This was one of the shots of Spider-Man that I think Danny Fingeroth was most uncomfortable with, uh, with the reverse webbing in panel three. And again, you know, it was Roger asking for for the silhouette. I, I actually would have said that Roger asked for the silhouette on just the head. Uh, I don't know why I decided to do that, other than I wanted to make it very, very obvious that it was the identity that was being uh, withheld and and not any other part of it, you know. I mean, plus the fact I wanted to use the original Ditko. And if you would have done panel one with the entire figure in silhouette, I, it wouldn't have been as effective. So I decided to to, to go with the, uh, you know, with, with the panel pretty much exactly the way it was with just the uh, the head in silhouette to communicate what Roger was trying to, to put across. Yeah, I like how in the first panel of the flashbacks, you've got this almost spotlight on the character to allow it to still pop out of the dark room. Um, you know, it, it's it's uh, still a striking image without losing that level of detail. You know, I, and it is while it is very Dicko, it has your own kind of unique flair to to how it's been reframed and stuff that you know sells it as both y- your interpretation and his. And shout out to 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 Mr. Austin to Terry Austin. Because he was able to, his own style of, you know, nice, juicy black lines really played into the way Mr. Ditko used to ink himself with, with some of those, you know, those, those larger holding lines and stuff. And it really, it really enhanced the Ditko-ishness of the pencils having uh, Austin's line on it. I mean, it really did come together in an incredible way. And again, uh, those bottom three tiers, I mean, that that one, two, three, panel four would not work uh, fully colored, fully rendered. Uh, so, you know, 
Christy Shield knows her job and uh, did it in knockouts. And that's what makes it work. You know, I mean, it, it works really well. Very cool. All right, let's go to page five. So page five reads, out of the flashback, Tim is really getting into this. I mean, anybody would. <laughs> what about your webbing? Spider-Man peels off a glove and shows the kid his web shooters, gives a couple of quick taps and webs a sling from the ceiling, which he sits Tim in like a swing. The kid is loving this. Boy, it must be neat to be Spider-Man. Spider-Man admits that it has its moments, but it's not all beer and Skittles. Tom hops back down onto his bed and picks up the scrapbook again. Spider-Man started out in showbiz and gave it up to battle bad guys. And Tim wants to know why. Spider-Man swallows hard and starts to explain. Anything stand out to you here, Ron? I, I did go back and look at, uh, I mean, I always did when I drew the web shooters. I always went back to the original Ditko features, you know, where they would show the web shooters and everything. I always, I always draw the web yeah. shooters looking more like Ditko's than anybody else's because he, there, there was some real thought to the, to the mechanics of it. And I always try to match, uh, match the Ditko uh, whenever possible. So, uh, so no, I mean, otherwise I pretty much gave Roger what he was asking for uh, at each, at each step. And again, I don't think the final shot of Spider-Man is, is a lift, but it is me trying to still keep that Ditko attitude, that relaxed posture that, uh, that said Ditko to me. Uh, I also, you know, Ditko only did the, the heavy blacks on Spider-Man for a few issues. But this was uh, actually me staying with the current continuity because when uh, Tom DeFalco was editor in, uh, of the Spider-Man titles, one of the things he wanted to bring back to, to Spider-Man were, was the heavier blacks on the blue areas. Um, that was something that Roger and Romita Jr. brought back together. And I, and I, I think that's the way the costume should be done. I don't always portray it that way myself. But I always liked it. I think it it really makes the the outfit pop. Also the also the web pits, which uh, are prominent here. I always draw the underarm webbing. It's one of the things that makes that costume the genius that I feel it is. So if you ever catch me not doing the webbing, it's for some reason. I, you know, I I I've, <laughs> I've trumped up some reason in my head not to do it. Like I. You know, see, because for me, my my headcanon is that Spider-Man has had several different costumes over the years. He's had to make new ones for himself so that there was right. one that was more open blue and there was one that has that, that was a darker blue and it wasn't always the same material. And and that the eyepieces have been different over the course of the years and all that kind of stuff. And at, at least as far as the how the regular artists have framed it and handled it over the years, you know? So, you know, if I was doing a flashback to a Ramita phase where he really wasn't doing the underarm webbing at all, I might not do the underarm webbing if that's what we were trying to recall. But otherwise, when left to my own devices, always going to do the underarm webbing. The coolest thing in the world. I I don't know why that that would be the best use of CGI to me in the world in the films is he should have the underarm webbing all the time. Yeah, that well they they did it kind of in Homecoming and that was fun to see, kind of, kind of. One of the things I like about this page 
uh, particularly is how much you emphasize both aspects of Spider-Man. The first image, you know, it's kind of a little bit like down low, the camera, if you will. And so it's kind of emphasizing his larger than life scale. He's very heroic looking, a big puffed out chest. But by the end, he looks very human and almost kind of silly in the last two panels. And you get both that heroic feel for him and the grounded human element that I think really starts to take over as this script continues. And I've, I've always admired that about this, this particular rendition. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure it was an accident, but uh, I, I mean, you know, I, I, there are times when the narrative requires you to, to take the point of view of one character or the other. And panel one is definitely more from Tim's point of view. So more than that, I really can't cop to. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to page six. So page six reads, we have a flashback panel here of Spider-Man standing by doing nothing as the burglar runs past him at the TV station. Then a flashback panel of the burglar with a smoking gun standing over the body of Ben Parker, a horrified May Parker off to one side. Back out of the flashback, Spider-Man is sitting there kind of down, saying that because he failed to act, someone very dear to him was killed, that he screwed up badly. He had thought only of himself. Tim grabs him by the arm. But you learned. You made up for it. Spider-Man turns and looks at this kid who is so much older than his years. Yeah, Tim, and I'm still making up for it. It almost sounds like a cliche, but it's so true that with great power comes great responsibility and so forth. Blah, blah, blah. Tim wants to break Spider-Man's mood. Come on, let me show you what else I've got. Uh, I don't know, Ron, do you wrinkle at the blah, blah, blahing of Spider-Man's mantra? I know I know you hold firm to that. Not if it's coming from Roger Stern. Roger Stern is one of the people I will bow to as knowing knowing Peter Parker as well or better than, than I know Peter Parker. So, no, I, I, that that is uh, between professionals uh, behind the scenes. So, no, I have no problem with that. This was another page. I'm surprised I didn't play up the the eye contact uh, at all between uh, Spider-Man and uh, uh, Tim. It's possible that I was trying to go more with a a moment where Pete would would have a harder time making eye contact uh, because I have him turned away from him two panels in a row. That might have just been the way I I chose to uh, communicate the emotion a little bit more. Uh, and I wanted to give them some distance because, again, storytelling-wise, uh, visually, I wanted Tim to have to call Spider-Man back to re-engage. So I, I needed him to step away. And again, I'm pretty sure that's not a direct swipe in the final panel, but it's me trying to communicate that Ditko stance that I like so much with the uh, you know the one hip cock. But I, I, I was happy with, uh, with that final panel. I like how kind of self-absorbed Spider-Man is in, in this moment, you know, not that he's not making contact. He kind of goes into a place of pain that's personal to him, even if he's expressing it outwardly. And and I'm curious because I think your art spends more time on Spider-Man's remorse and the value of his credo than Stern's plot does. I mean, obviously Stern is blah, blah, blahing it. And, and you've even removed Tim's kind of physical consoling of Spider-Man. Do, do you think that that's reflective of your kind of the value you put on that element of Spider-Man and his personal responsibility? I think to a degree that might be the case. Uh, 
in panel three, Tim is is, is touching him and, and is reacting yeah. and is trying to pull him back from, uh-oh, uh, <laughs> my hero just got depressed. For Pete, what I what I really feel about this scene is that what Pete is feeling is that he showed up at this kid's room because of this article and, you know, he feels like, okay, this kid, I'm this kid's hero. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm Spider-Man. I, I need to deal with this. I'm going to go give this kid this thing. And, you know, and he, he was hoping it was going to be, look, I'm Spider-Man and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. At this point, this kid has actually drawn out of him a retelling of his origin. Pete never thinks about that origin without feeling like crap. Uh, Tom DeFalco and I just had the opportunity not that long ago to revisit Pete's regret. You know, the fact he will live with that for the rest of his life. That that you know he screwed that up and he can't undo it. Uh, so yes, I, I do feel like that is a moment where it really it became real for Pete. This conversation with this kid became real for Pete. And, you know, Roger asks for that to be shown with eye contact. And I was, I, for some reason, the way it reads to me is that Pete is embarrassed, that he just let something out, that he's adjusting to having let this kid in. Because he doesn't tell that story all the time. He's not sitting around, a, you know, Avengers compound saying, oh, yeah, man, I screwed up. And, you know, it's never going to be to the point where he can talk about Uncle Ben's death. And not feel it like a gut punch, you know that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think he's embarrassed that he's that he's let it out and that it's affecting him the way it is. And when and, and again, I wanted them to to disengage so that they could reengage. I mean, uh, you know, it's now it's up to Tim in, in more of the adult role to reengage Spider-Man to get him back into the conversation. Yeah, and you and you you do that too with that nice in the third panel. You've got the spotlight effect that like draws them together, but then it's erased in the subsequent uh, panels. You know, you know. Speaking of Uncle Ben's death, I mean, it looks like that second panel is is a Dicko lift from Amazing Fantasy fifteen, but we don't actually ever see that image in Amazing Fantasy fifteen. And um, I don't know if this is the first time that we're really seeing that. Maybe around like Spider Man, Amazing Spider Man two hundred. We, we peeled back some of the curtain a little bit about the physical interaction inside the house, but whether or not May was actually present, you know, things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was, I just took Roger at his word. That's what he wanted. That's what I gave him since Pete wasn't there. Anytime he's telling the story, I'm sure he's always picturing it in the most horrific way possible. You know, whether, you know, I, I don't know in, uh, in Canon how it was all played out. You know, I, I, I don't know whether anybody really does know if there's a, a canon version of, of how that evening played out with the burglar and Uncle Ben and, and, and Aunt May. Sorry to take everybody away from Ron for a second there, but I want to tell you a little bit about our Slack. Hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on the Slack. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. I'm there all the time. Just this week, we've been discussing The Falcon and the Winter Soldier Show, as well as Abraham Reisman's new book, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. So if you want to join this awesome Spider-Man community, just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi. 
And once you're there, be sure to let us know what you thought of this new episode. Uh, Let's talk about page seven. Page seven script reads, cut to another tattered bit of the newspaper article, section three. Cut back to Spider-Man holding a jar and watching some flattened 38 slugs roll around in it. These are bullets which were fired at Spider-Man during an attempted bank robbery. Tim had dug them out of the side of the wall and is impressed to hell and back. How was Spider-Man able to dodge the bullets the hold-up men fired? Spider-Man says, well, this is a secret, but... And explains about his spider sense while we see a brief bit of Spider-Man dodging the bullets in a flashback. Out of the flashback, Tim is really wide-eyed. Wow! So, another fun dynamic page here. Uh, Anything stand out to you about this? Other than Roger's hands-on writing... He asked for panel three to be flipped because uh, in the course of writing the dialogue, he saw that he needed Tim to speak first. So there you go. Uh, With Spider-Man being that much taller than Tim, there was no way he could execute the word balloons pleasingly and clearly. So he asked for the panel to be flipped and thus it was. And uh, thus I look like I know what I'm doing. (laughs) So... Uh, but but be that as it may, yeah, I mean, I, it's me trying desperately to do Ditko. I'm sure the uh, the multi-image sequence was probably based on something Ditko had done at some point. You know, that's just me trying to emulate the masters uh, to the best of my limited ability. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's a fun page. I, uh, I I got a kick out of the story every every step of the way. And again, you know, a shout out to the production staff for the uh, for the stuff on the uh, newspaper articles, a little bit of a car ad showing there and things like that. You know, I mean, it's incredibly well done. Uh, it's one. This is one of the first Spider-Man comics I ever read. And I, I can't tell you how much this page just broadened my imagination. Um, just the very idea that there was like a whole uh, what seems maybe a cottage industry of people like investigating the fight scenes after Spider-Man had been there. Like, and this might be one of the first times my collector brained childhood was, was turned on to, Oh my gosh, like that would be such a neat thing to do to go and pull bullets out of, out of a wall. I think, you know, your image here of the spider sense in action, you know, maybe because it's one of the first Spider-Man comics I read, but this is the go-to image that I think in my brain, whenever I read about the spider sense, we talk about it. This is the demonstration of it that most, is most striking to me. Um, and I, I really enjoy that about it. Well, see, you just gave away the house there, Dan. If this was one of the first Spider-Man comics that, that you got, then no wonder. I mean, your, your uh, appreciation of my work is all tangled up in your appreciation of Spider-Man as an entity, and I'm I'm humbled by that, and I'm flattered by that. But you know, it's Spidey. It's not me. So now we can now we can put that to rest. Oh no, never, Ron. I remain your big. I remain your biggest fan, no matter what evidence you present to me. And I love this little like punch in on on Tim in, in the bottom corner there, just kind of in his own little bubble. And you know, there's a, just a, a number of different styles going on in this page. Whether you're leaving them in an empty white space or like having him kind of pipe back in there on the corner of the page. All right, let's move on to page eight then. Okay, so page eight reads, cut to yet another tattered chunk of the article, section four. Cut back to Spider-Man getting a good laugh out of Tim's retraction scrapbook. 
They're both chuckling over Jameson's half-hearted admissions of error. Spider-Man drops the scrapbook back into the steamer trunk. Well, Tim, I could do this for days, but I have things to do, and you really need to be getting your sleep, okay? Tim nods, okay. Spider-Man tucks him in, ruffles his hair a little, and switches off the light. Spider-Man's headed for the window when Tim calls out to him a little plaintively, Spider-Man? Spider-Man turns. Tim asks, will you tell me who you really are? Uh, I gotta say, I think this is one of the most emotionally powerful pages in, in, in the book, other than maybe the last page. Just the shift in body language as you put it on the page stands out to me the most. Do you have a, a, a reflection on, on that? This just pure storytelling? It's one of my favorite pages of the job uh, because it covers the the lightheartedness of it and the, the connection of it, but it also uh, is you know, hinting at the, uh, the tragedy of it. Um, so it's one of my, I, again, I wish I knew for sure I, that lighting I may have seen Ditko do at some point. I would be, it would be impossible for me to, to cite it now. I, I'm going to fault on the side of saying that I did see Ditko do that at some point. But again, when you put something like that in pencil, you're not sure that the inker and the colorist are going to capture it as well as Terry Austin and Christy Shield did and really bring it home. And that, they nailed it. And, and even with you know, me doing the blacks on Spider-Man but, but leaving the blacks of the room uh, as just X's, you know, that's a lot for Mr. Austin to, to balance. And he did it expertly. It's just uh, such a pleasure to to see, you know, your intent make it through to the final printed page, as as, as much as that happens in this this particular job. Uh, so so yeah. Uh, the other thing I will mention is that, you know, he mentions uh, Spidey tossing Tim's hair in this scene. I use that when they're first introduced to each other, uh, like on page two. I have Spider-Man tossing Tim's hair uh, in panel two. That, you know, obviously Roger's mention of it later gave me permission to do it there and instead of doing it uh, where Roger actually asked for it. That was just one little thing I noticed there. That, that, that's probably where I got the idea early in the job to do it was from Roger's plot. That's really cool. Yeah. You know, this page, like you said, it has the kind of run of emotions and, and you can really chart it. You know, uh, Spider-Man laughing is something you kind of never get to see, you know, and it, it suggests like the the comfort via which, you know, that, that Tim is providing him, you know, uh, the, the ability to open up like that. Even this, the second panel with Spider-Man, there's like a confidence in it and a, and a casual na- nature to it. But then by the final panel, just seeing all of that heroism pulled out of Spider-Man in that image, it's it's really uh, uh, like, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it is a Dicko thing. I've never seen, I don't think I've ever seen this image before. And uh, it's the one that really hits me. And um, also just that cross on his body, really nice. I don't think it's a swipe. I just wonder if I didn't see that lighting effect where the, the lighting encompasses the eyepiece and everything. I'm just thinking that might have been something that I saw uh, Mr. Ditko do at some point. Uh, but I, I don't believe the shot itself is is a lift or a swipe. 
the the moment there, and again, I didn't have have Spider Man turn yet, because my feeling was this is ex- this is the moment where he realizes that this is going where he was really hoping it wouldn't go, because Pete knows what we don't know until the end. You know, we don't know until the end of the story what the whole deal is. Pete does, and he was hoping he could get away with this, you know, by giving this kid a light moment and spending some time with the kid. We don't know how much time he spent, but, you know, we're assuming he spent some leisure time with the kid, laughing and looking through the scrapbook and all this kind of stuff. And he was hoping that he could keep it to that. But this is the moment. The kid comes right out and asks him, and I I wanted the weight of that to be showing. I, I wanted to somehow visually communicate the fact that, uh, you know, that Pete's not shocked by it, but he is stopped by it. Cause he could have just said, no, I don't think so. Bye now. <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, the, the way it's framed and as, as Roger said, the, the plaintiveness of, of the request, in my opinion, it's the bluntness of the request. You know, that that uh, it all boils down to it. This is what it all boils down to for Tim. There it is. And uh, and 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 Pete is taking it very seriously. It's hit him like a brick. You know, now he's gotta deal with it. And I, I don't think this is a request of just a, like a, a, a child that wants like a fun answer. Like for Tim, this has real meaning to him. You know, like if his life is coming to a close as it is, this is something that will you know, give him a more profound connection. And I think Peter's humanity allows him to read it that way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, but the, the connection, you know, the, the kid got the connection that he wanted with, with his hero. He learned more about his hero and everything, but, you know, obviously from his collection and from what he's been sharing with, with, with Spider-Man is that Tim had recognized his heroism and his humanity way before this. I mean, you know, why else would he keep a scrapbook of Jameson's retractions? (laughs) Because he always believed in Spider-Man and was always bemused or, or irritated by the fact that Jameson didn't. But, you know, all of that is not lost on Pete. All of this connection that he's had with the kid, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that he's made himself vulnerable in those moments that we've already pointed out, you know, he's taking it very seriously. He's taking the entire interaction incredibly seriously, but it, but it all comes down to this, doesn't it? Yeah. So uh, let's turn the page. This is page nine and uh, Stern's script reads, Spider-Man steps back to the bed, crouching there. Tim, you know that that's my greatest secret, that if people knew who I was, I'd never have a moment's peace, that my friends would be in danger. Tim looks up. I'd love to tell another soul, long as I lived. Honest. Spider-Man. Yes, I believe you, Tim. Slowly, solemnly, he pulls off his mask, his face illuminated in the moonlight streaking in the window. My name is Peter Parker. I took most of the pictures you have in those newspaper clippings. More really interesting lighting going on here, Ron. I know that Stern talks about it in the script, 
but you know that that panel of him pulling the mask off his head and revealing his face you know this is i guess you know i, I don't know if you did it in marvel team up but i i wonder if this is the first time you drew peter's face in a spider-man comic i mean what an what an iconic way to to debut that you do you want to talk about this uh i had handled pete uh in the more ramita salbasama fashion in my uh in my team up stuff but this was i i mean what i'm what i'm so a little surprised by seeing this after all these years is how much i was extending some of these moments for roger uh, and how incredibly well he scripted it because the first two panels the script is pretty much right there what he had in the plot but you know, the way it plays out visually is Pete seriously considers not telling him. He turns back towards the window. And I, you know, we, and Roger gave that moment some breathing space where you're going with the expectation, you know, of course he's not going to tell the kid. That is the magic of working Marvel style. Uh, because for some reason, one reason or another, I did, uh, decided that, that that I would take a breath in that moment and even make it look like, you know, Pete's not going to do it. And that uh, the panel one, two, three, four, panel five and six are both the, the most obvious of the, uh, the Ditko swipes. The, and it's possible that... I was so impressed with the shot of the, I always loved that shot of him pulling off his mask. Uh, Ditko's shot of him pulling off his mask that I deliberately staged it. So his back was to Tim when he pulls his mask off, just so I could use that shot. So it's possible that I staged the scene deliberately to have, you know, Pete's back to Tim. So I could use that shot and then suggests that he pulls the mask off with his back to him and then turns as Pete. And again, the, the, the inking and the lighting and the coloring of this, just everything works to carry through the intent of the lighting in the pencils. And it is a very, very rare thing to have that kind of synergy work. It just is. Take my word for it. And uh, and it just worked here in spades. I, I can see the real visual difference between the final panel where Terry really ups the the uh, shadows on on Tim's face, almost as if Spider Man's face is giving off light onto Tim. Uh, but you know the the use of highlights there, the pure white on on Peter's face to kind of draw you in there is is striking. Well, I, I was just noticing that I indicated the uh, the dresser down there at the bottom of the panel. Terry left it out, and it's it's a it's a good move. Uh, that that was just cluttering yeah. the panel, and certainly in color, it would have cluttered it even more. So uh, that was a uh, along with throwing the, the the shadow work on Tim, uh, taking out the the uh, the dresser was a was a really smart move. Talk about the um, the use of the mirror here. I mean, it was a really interesting image of like Peter in shadow back there that I've always found kind of haunting. You know, it's just like uh, almost like a something from like the nether realms or something like that. 
Was there any intention storytelling wise there? Like, I mean, it almost looks like he's holding a, a mask of his own face. What the, the only thing I remember uh, wanting to use that to do was to, I, it was an attempt by me to show the solemnity of the moment that, you know, that, that this was something that was, that Pete was taking incredibly seriously. He knew he was taking a chance on this kid, but he also knew why he was taking the chance on the kid and that, you know, it was, that it was brass tacks, you know, I mean, that, that's why the lighting, that's why all the stuff, you know, that that's why I wanted to use that Ditko shot because it, it spoke to the solemnity, to the, to the weight of, of the scene. Uh, and I, and I think it just, it, it works perfectly. I mean, everything, the, the, the attitude of the camera, the angle on the shot, uh, you know, the whole bit, uh, is counterbalanced by the, uh, the window framing, uh, in, in panel five. It just, it all works, you know, uh, and it may have been more of a case, <coughs> as I said, where I actually staged the first four panels so I could use those final two. And I'm not going to apologize for it because I think it worked great. <laughs> it's it's amazing that like working backwards like that in some way gave you that fourth panel, which is like one of the most striking, you, you, you know, just that, like you said, turning back to the window, there's like a level of humanity that's not in the script and and you just it's almost like i don't know whether happy accident or or whatever but it's a really interesting psychologically just again what really impresses me is working plot script you know roger was able to see it and react to it and and give it the beat that you know was implied and uh that's that's the kind of magic that you sometimes are able to accomplish with the uh with the Marvel method. Absolutely. Okay, let's turn the page. Page 10. Tim smiles slyly. And old Jameson is paying you? Boy, that's neat. Pete smiles and hugs Tim. It's our secret, Pete. Long as I live. Yeah, says Pete. He pulls his mask back on. And with a final wave, he leaps out the window. So, you know, this page is like your first kind of like real full page of... I mean, you described your previous... Peter being kind of Ramita-esque, you know, to me, I really recognized the Peter that you would ultimately draw in your run with Tom DeFalco on this page. Do you want to speak to the kind of inspiration of your version of Peter Parker? Ditko was the, what I was trying to do. Uh, even when I was finally awarded the title, I was always trying to do a slightly older version of, of Ditko's Peter Parker. For me, uh, when it came to like a live version of that, an actor version of that, you and I have discussed this. I, a young Tom Hanks was always somebody that I thought had that cut to, to his face. You know, it was a, a narrower face, but it was a rounder face, a young looking face. Actually of all the actors that have played Spider-Man uh, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, Andrew Lincoln not Andrew Lincoln, Andrew Garfield really looks like a Ditko Pete to me. So that's what all I was going for. Brevoort seemed to think that these faces are inconsistent on this page, which, you know, I, I don't agree with. I think I pretty much accomplished what I was trying for uh, as far as uh, a Ditko Peter Parker. 
Uh, I'm not perfect, but uh, I will. I think I will defend at least a consistency on this page. This is one of my favorite pages. Panel three is one of my favorite panels of the entire job. What specifically do you see in it? I mean, I I love it too, but I'm curious to hear what you what you see in it. The the, the incredible humanity and normalcy of Peter Parker in that suit. You know, uh, you take off the mask and he's sitting there, you know, being Pete and he's exposed. It's just, you know, that's, that's Peter Parker in a Spider-Man suit, which is when you are lucky enough to tell Spider-Man stories, you, it behooves you to keep in mind that every Spider-Man story is a Peter Parker story, and Peter that Spider-Man is just a costume that he wears. is is a, is a, is the suit. The suit affects his some of his outward affectation. You know, he becomes more of a wiseacre, all that kind of stuff. But if you tell a Spider-Man story, whether Pete takes off the mask at any point during the story or not, you are best served by considering it a Peter Parker story. He just happens to be wearing his Spider-Man suit, you know, that kind of thing. And Tom DeFalco and I always, always approached the, 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 our run on Spider-Man that way. You know, the, the, every story was about Peter Parker. You were checking in with your friend Pete. Uh, he just happened to be wearing the costume or not, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, this page with the interaction with Tim, and I, I wanted to make it as genuine as possible. Refresh my memory. Does he ask for the hug? Does, does Roger ask for the hug? Uh, he does not. Um, and, and that's something I wanted to ask you about. It's like, this is the shortest part of the script that you turn into a page. He describes maybe like not even three sentences of dialogue. And yet you gave this thing a whole page, which then Stern, you know, expounded on with more writing. Uh, you know, I'm curious about your sensibilities, if you can remember, to give this this much space. Well, I wanted Pete... I wanted the moment where Tim says that he would keep the secret. Uh, I, I forget how he phrases it. How does he keep the, I'll keep the secret for. As long as I live. Yeah. I wanted that moment to breathe. And I believe at some point he says friends forever or something like that. I'm getting choked up. <laughs> uh, yeah. I really wanted this moment to breathe. Because it's the whole point of the 11 pages, you know, quite simply. So I, uh, I didn't want to, it took us, you know, 10 pages, nine pages to get here. I wanted to make sure that it paid off uh, emotionally as far as the bond between uh, Pete and Tim. I, I, I can't help, you know, for me, that fifth panel of, Pete's face while he's hugging Tim and Tim in the previous panel is smiling ear to ear, but Pete knows this is the last time he's going to see this kid and he's saying goodbye to him forever. And the mask is a bit of an escape from that. That's why there is no extra beat between the last two panels because Pete went from that panel to getting the mask on as quickly as possible because he didn't want Tim to see. That's a good point. Well, thank you, Ron. Uh, let's get to the last page here, the one that I think everyone remembers the most, perhaps. Here's what it reads. Outside, we see Spider-Man bounding off through the trees, away from the little bungalow building Tim's room is in. 
until Spider-Man reaches a high stone wall. He looks back towards the building a moment and then leaps away. Finally, we see a plaque on the stone wall which reads, Slocum Brewer Cancer Clinic. And the last piece of the article is overlaid on the scene, explaining how Tim has just a few more weeks left to live. Uh, I think it's safe to say that this is the sucker punch of the book. After the book ends, Stern writes, End. JR, milk these final scenes with Spider-Man and Tim for all you can. We got to make them cry out there. Um, which I would say, success. Do you want to reflect on this this page? One, maybe reading this story for the first time and, and getting here. And then two, how you chose to kind of visually depict this for maximum effect. Well, I didn't, I didn't want Spider-Man looking back because uh, I traded that for panel three where he is out of Tim's eyeline. He left Tim in bed, so he knows he's out of Tim's eyeline, and he's wrecked. So I took that as that beat as the opportunity to see the sign. And I love what Roger used in the, the final, the news and final newspaper clipping because it's so brief and, and kind of uh, brusque in the plot, but he really kept the emotional impact in uh, Jay Conover's prose style, you know, in his writing style. And it just kills. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And, uh, and once again, you don't always get this, but there are, you know, if you look at panel two, again, working layouts and finishes, is is Mr. Austin gave me the stars, but he decided, no, no, the trees will be in shadow and the sky will be open. Uh, that's the opposite of what I was asking for. But it, he made it work incredibly, incredibly well. Uh, he, he, he made all the shadow work that I was going for on the wall work incredibly well. And again, between... Terry Austin doing the the spider web and the spider eyes as a uh, a surprint on an extra layer to be printed in color and the colors that Christy Shield chose it's incredible it's just magical I mean they it all came together incredibly well and as I said before very seriously it don't always work like that you don't always get those kinds of gifts, page after page for 11 full pages, you know. I can probably count on one hand the number of jobs I've done that have just landed this well. I mean, I've, I'm a very fortunate guy. I've worked with some of the best thinkers in the business. I've worked with some of the best colorists in the business. And I appreciate every every success that I've had, but... You know, you do not get this a lot. You know, there's a, there's always something that, you know, kind of fouls the pot at least slightly, you know, that kind of thing. This job, I, it doesn't have that. It really doesn't. Everybody brought their A game, and I think every intention lands perfectly for the reader. And, uh, you know... From the response we've gotten from people, you know, apparently it landed for the reader as well. So, I mean, that you can't ask for more than that. People are crying in our comments feed right now. So um, if that gives you any any indication, a couple 
cry if they're not crying yet, Dan, I suggest you read the actual copy from Jake Conover's last newspaper clip. Go ahead. Oh, well, yeah, I I can do that uh, if you give me just a second here. Um so it says it says here, uh, when I asked him what he wanted, more than anything else, he looked me square in the eye and said, Mr. Conover, I'd like to meet Spider-Man and talk to him just for a few minutes. Well, I hope Tim gets his wish. I hope that somewhere out there, Spider-Man reads these words. I hope that my publisher is wrong about him and that he takes the time to visit a very brave young man named Tim Harrison. And I hope he does it soon. You see, Tim Harrison has leukemia. And the doctors only give him a few more weeks to live. I'm getting goosebumps just reading that myself. And of course, punctuated with the word end uh, there at the bottom right hand corner. Always stood out to me about this page. You know, you mentioned the sky. I've always kind of interpreted Spider-Man swinging into the heavens uh, in some way, like almost like a accompanying Tim in, in some way, whatever way he can. And then that fine, that, that fourth pay, panel where you have the Slocum Brewer Cancer Center clinic on the wall and you've just got Spider-Man's feet peeking in at the edges. I don't know how to interpret it, but it's always really worked for me in, in some way that I, I can't really put my finger on. Maybe it's that like this book has really allowed ourselves to move away from Spider-Man, it's not really like about or for him. And yet, you know, he was able to briefly make an appearance. Was there any meaning that you uh, had in this? It's funny because Terry brings in Spider-Man's left foot, which isn't in your pencils, into the drawing, albeit just the littlest bit. Was there a, a, a re- intention that you had behind keeping Spider-Man in the frame there? Uh, no, uh, other than to make it uh, as obvious as possible that it was a camera pull-in. I wanted to keep as many elements from the third panel in the fourth panel, but make the sign readable so you so it would be uh, crashingly obvious that we just brought the camera in closer. Uh, so that was right. my only real intent there. But, you know, all that thing you said, all that stuff you said too. Let's go back to the cover of this. I mean, you know, we've gone through every page here. I, I think we've talked about this, I think, even more than I expected to. And I, I appreciate the amount of time you gave to this, Ron. You know, do you have any further reflections, like, going through this process on on it? Has this revealed anything to you? Other than I rarely think about this job. I Certainly, it's rare that I read it or look at it that I, I'm not affected by it. And that's still the case all these years later. It is one of the jobs that I am unabashedly proud to have been a part of all these years later. It's an easy go-to for me when people say, do you have a favorite job? Do you have, you know, however they want to phrase it. Because, you know, especially when I started co-plotting with Tom DeFalco and everything, so many of these jobs are my babies that it's, it's you know, it's, an impo- it's impossible for me to choose favorites but in the overall impact of of doing a story like this that has and it's not a matter well i guess it is a matter of ego it's ridiculous not to not to bring my ego into it but to have this story show up in a lot of people's greatest spider-man stories 
lists, you know, uh, to, to have only been on Spider-Man for a couple of years with Tom, uh, as unfortunate as that was, to have le- left some impact to be a part of something like this. And again, I, I look at it less as my contributions to the story per se as how lucky I was to be included in this story, uh, you know, uh, that it, it's always going to be a very special thing for me. It's going to be uh, a contribution to the Spider-Man overall mythos that I'm very proud of and that, uh, you know, uh, I'll defend it. You know, it, it's one of those things where I've actually, you know, heard people say disparaging things about it because they think it's a big waste of time because they'd rather just see the umpteenth Spider-Verse story or something, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I don't really understand it because these explorations, whether they're 11 pages or 10 pages or, or 60 pages, these explorations of who Peter Parker is as a human being to me uh, have always been far more important than, you know, Spider-Man's feats. You know, that kind of thing, to use that uh, that terminology. Uh, I've never understood that attraction to characters, because to me it's all about who these people are. Uh, you know, that, that's what Stan brought to the table. It's, you know, the, the stories are worth telling because of who these people are when they're not using their superpowers. Uh, so it's coincidentally Marvel to me, and, uh, and, and I'm very, very proud to have been included. Well, I, I I think that's so curious because you know this story has had many imitators over the years, uh, you know even in the pages of Spider Man, and it's be, kind of become like a template for stories that would plumb these kind of human depths of the character. And you know, not that the book had had been um, like dry or, or or lacking in character before, but this really stands out as like maybe the first of its type in the Spider Man you know, comics mythos to kind of set itself so apart from the continuity and the ongoing adventures to kind of spend an issue doing something like this, or even half an issue doing something like this. Like he says in the Will Eisner style, in many ways it set up a new template. I, I, yeah, I don't know if you even read, if you read the Chip Zdarsky story that won an Eisner last year that, Frankly, if you ask me, I think it's a bit of a ripoff uh, of, of this story. You know, it has its own merits, obviously. Reflecting on today, you know, I, we're, I, we're lucky to have you join us to talk about this. Uh, so, I mean, thanks to the listeners for tuning in. But thank you to you, Ron, for uh, sharing uh, your story and insight with us here on, on a book that's special to so many of us. I, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Dan. You know that uh, uh, personally, I, I'm very fond of you. Mark uh, is is terrific. I I often talk about your amazing spider talk as being one of the smarter uh, spider podcasts out there. Uh, I've appreciated uh, a lot of the guys that are doing podcasts now that are keeping the real love of the of the strips and the characters alive. Uh, and you guys are uh, you're, you're doing good work, and I'm flattered whenever I'm asked to be a part of it. Believe me. Well, we hope to have you back for the, our next season all about your stuff. So uh, if people watching this are enjoying it, you know, uh, hopefully we can get a lot more of Ron to celebrate his work. 
Like, I can't wait to talk to you about Peter and Mary Jane getting on the subway together and, and that dramatic scene that you plotted out. But um, yeah. You can just play the tape of me tearing up again. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ron, if people do want to follow you anywhere, what are you, what are you working on right now? Where can people find you on the internet? I know you've got a really healthy Facebook community going. Tell our listeners a little bit more about where they can keep up with you. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm on Facebook just as Ron Friends. It's uh, it's I don't have a personal page and a pro page. Uh, my page is pretty much reflecting on the industry and uh, occasionally making commentary, not about what's going on now, but my experiences in the industry and my love of the characters. So, uh, and there's usually some halfway decent art involved. Uh, I'm represented by CatskillComics.com for commissions and original art. There's not much original art left at the moment, but uh, as far as from the Marvel or DC stuff, but that is where you can contact, uh, contact me if you're interested in a private commission. And I'm also working for a California-based new publisher called Sit Comics that as of this summer will finally be available through Diamond Distribution. So hopefully uh, it'll be now available in every comic shop you can think of. Uh, it's a great line of terrific titles by a gentleman named Darren Henry, Blue Baron, The Heroes Union, Startup. Just terrific. Uh, if you're a fan of uh, 70s Marvel, as Darren Henry is, he's a child of the 70s. Yeah. It's very much in my wheelhouse. It's all ages superhero stuff. He's also doing humor titles and a horror anthology. It's just some really, really wonderful stuff. So I urge everybody to check it out when possible. Like I said, they're available now on Comixology and through select comic shops and through mail order. But come August, I believe they're going to be available through Diamond. And uh, jump on board and come to Facebook and let me know what you think of the entire uh, endeavor because uh, we're very interested in getting as much feedback as possible as quickly as possible. I have a lot of fun with them. I'll, I'll say that I keep up with them. And uh, I, you're right. I'm excited to have them on, on a, a, an app like Comixology to make it easier for me to get a hold of them. So that's really exciting. I, I always love some new Ron Friends artwork. So again, Ron, thank you so much. We got people in the chat saying thank you as well. So, uh, you know, I think the whole community uh, was excited by this and we can't wait to have you back on. Well, that's terrific. Maybe at some point we can open it up to the community and answer some questions live or something. That would be my pleasure. Yeah, that would be great. So um, as always, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by Ron Friends, Sal Vusema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. And our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack and Spider Madge, plus our introduction animation and musical stinger comes from Josh Sutton from the YouTube show panels to pixels. I want to talk briefly about what we're going to be doing next episode. So next episode, we'll be diving back into the pages of Spectacular Spider-Man to catch up with that book, but mainly we'll be devoting the entire episode to the character of the Black Cat. We'll talk about her introduction, her relationship with Spidey, and how she's been used over the years, even leading up to today. So I hope that you guys will join us for uh, this awesome discussion of the black cat. But until then, we like to end our show uh, with a promise to you. So until we get obsessed, so obsessed in our collecting that we're digging slugs out of the walls and declaring them annuals, 
Our motto remains, with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't, don't miss the next in-